Take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Exodus with me. The book of Exodus. We, of course, return this morning to our study in this second book of the Old Testament, Exodus. If you're visiting with us this morning, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, I'm sure you will find one. If you just look in front of you on the racks and the chairs in front of you, you'll see one there. Please follow along with us. Turn to the second book, the second chapter book, really, if you will, of the Bible, Exodus. If you recall, we opened with the descendants of Jacob in this book. Remember in the opening verses, the 70 persons providentially preserved in Egypt. Do you remember we looked at that? An account that was detailed in the closing chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. That, of course, is the account of, of Joseph, but it is so much more than an account filled with twists and turns. It was an account of providence, kind of providence. And in Egypt, we now, as this book opens, have a group of 70 persons miraculously preserved by the hand of God. And as this book opened, we're told the Israelites were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly strong. We learn all of that in the opening verses of chapter 1. So much so, so much increase that Pharaoh in, remember this, wrong fear, wrong fear begins to oppress them. But we also learn that when people with the right fear, do you remember that? The right fear, like the midwives of God alone, when, there are, when those such people with the right fear are oppressed or persecuted, God flourishes them. In fact, he flourishes them supernaturally so. By any onlooker, it would make no sense that amidst persecution, God's people grow. But that's exactly what we learn. Again, remember the Hebrew midwives were told to kill the newborn males. Well, they, of course, fear God and not Pharaoh, so they did not kill them. Under oppressive governance, they chose to, here it is, Obey God rather than men. And because of that right fear, we learned in chapter 1, verse 21, this glorious truth, God gave them families. In chapter 2, we read of God's providence at work, remember, in the birth of Moses. We recall the careful basket made by mom, the newborn placed in it, the discovery by a young lady who, lo and behold, just happens to be Pharaoh's daughter. The providence at work that provided support for the family, the resources, right, the money, and the royal opportunity for Moses. Again, we commented you cannot draw these things up by human machinations. This is what the Lord does in his providence. Then last time, we looked at Moses' departure from that opportunity in those courts. The humiliation of Moses and his exile to the wilderness of Midian. God grants him in his low estate, remember, a wife and a child, and as we'll see today, a new occupation. More on that in a moment, but a brief word on time and focus as we reorient to this book. We've been moving at quite a pace in these opening two chapters. In chapter one, if you just survey it, the focus is on Israel and their history moving forward 400 years from Genesis. That's a lot of movement 
in the opening chapter. And then in chapter 2, the focus zeroes in on Moses and the first 80 years of his life. 40 in Egypt, 40 in Midian. So we've moved forward at quite a pace. Here, though, in chapter 3, as it opens, the account slows right down and it drills down to a more pedestrian pace. Here in chapter 3, we have the call of God on Moses' life. And it's recounted moment by moment at this crucial juncture, not only of the man of God, Moses, but of the nation of Israel. In the first part of this chapter, and again, we're not going to get to this glorious chapter, all of it today. We can't possibly do it justice in one morning. But in the first part of this chapter, we will observe four elements of this call of God. Mark that, four elements that we'll see today of this call of God. These elements are laid out clearly in verses 1 through 10. So let's consider them in full first. Look with me at verse 1. And now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Let's get closer to this text now. And we'll begin in verse 1 with our first element, and it is this God's preparation. God's preparation. In verse 1, if you look at it again, we are given details that are important to understand the context here. So we need to note them. Number one, we learn that Moses is a shepherd. Do you see that? In fact, he was keeping the flock. That suggests there this is what he's in the middle of. This is what he's been doing. Acts 7.30, even more, tells us that Moses had done this for 40 years. 40 years he's been engaged in this occupation as shepherd. Now, given what we know Moses will do, remember, he's going to lead God's people, right, against Pharaoh, right? We know that's coming. I want you to consider that this is the preparation for that work of God. This is the preparation. Four decades in the wilderness tending sheep. God says, that's preparation. I want you to consider, friends, stop for a moment, consider any leadership preparation today. 
and tell them that their preparation is to spend 40 years doing something completely different, doing anything else for 40 years. How would that fly today in worldly preparation? Sure, that is not how man thinks of preparation, but mark this, beloved, time is God's preparation. Time is God's preparation, and much of it. Second, note the place here. Note his place, Moses. The sheep weren't even Moses' sheep. Do you see that? Whose sheep were they? Jethro's sheep. Some might think, sure, Moses is in the wilderness doing work, but it's his wilderness work, right? This is Moses' wilderness. No. No, this was another's flock. Moses was, mark this, the under-shepherd. Moses was the under-shepherd. He was, in fact, the steward. That's key. So-called professional preparation today would scoff at this. Nothing that's his own? Yes, the Lord says, taking care of another's. You see that? Taking care of another's. That is indeed the preparation for my work, God says. Take care of something that's not yours. Treat it as if it was your own, but it's not. That's the preparation for God's work. Three, note the activity. Moses was actively leading the flock. We can't miss this. And where? Across the wilderness. Moses is engaged. Moses is not just biding his time. He's not just waiting on a sign from the Lord. Moses is not looking back to Egypt or ahead to what's next. Note it. Moses is leading now. Now. Moses is busy at work. Moses is diligent with his lot. Moses is getting at it. I've heard it said, if you want work done... Give it to someone who's busy working. And that's just so true. In some sense, that is true here as well. Moses is not sitting on the rock in Midian waiting. Pensive. What next? What was? What could be? He's engaged responsibly, active in the work that is laid before him. So many lessons here, and I resist the temptation to digress. He is busy at it. And mark this, church, that is what you see every time in God's preparation. Every time. It's not what what can he possibly do then, but what he's already doing now. Do you see that? It's not what could be. It's not the what if. Not working out all the future plans. It's what is that man doing right now by way of preparation. Interestingly, in that activity, Moses so happens to lead the flock where? This is amazing. Look at the end of verse 1. Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. Again, you've got a lot of interchangeable terms in the book of Exodus. This is another one. Mount Sinai, Horeb. It's an aptly named uh, name given for all that's ahead in the book of Exodus. This is like your, your precursor, your introduction to this mountain that will be the focus of so much activity. We, of course, have an imminent encounter, which we'll get to today. We have the giving of the law, and we have the glory of God revealed all on this mountain, this mountain of God. So let's just stop for a moment before we move on to consider God's preparation here. Number one, Moses is a shepherd for 40 years. The lowly, messy, dirty occupation of tending sheep. 
An occupation, by the way, mark this, Genesis 46, 34 tells us that that occupation, shepherding, was despised by the Egyptians. Wow. Talk about humiliation again. In other words, God prepared Moses by engaging him in work, mark this, that no one else wanted. Do you see that? That was the preparation of God. Do this. Two, Moses is a shepherd for someone else and faithful in it, 40 years and still active. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that one who is faithful in a very little what is also faithful in much. Luke 16, 10. Church, mark this. When God calls, God prepares. When God calls, God prepares. God does not skip steps or make special exceptions in calling. Mark this. God is about lasting, sustainable, authentic, genuine preparation. Moses, with 40 years leading sheep, That's the preparation for Moses, 40 years leading God sheep. That's the way it works with God. And think just for a moment, if you're wrestling with that this morning. If God, after that Egyptian execution, that bravado, and what about the heroic save at the well, remember, wooing the ladies at the well? Imagine if Moses went straight from that to leadership. Now that's a script we can finish, isn't it? Insert that guy... Immediately into leadership, what do you have? You have an epic downfall that we see over and over again today. Do we not? It's exactly what we see. God's preparation requires time. It requires testing. It requires trials. Yes, a wrestling, a struggling. I'm not getting anywhere. But will you persevere? A stick to itness. God's preparation requires training to the tune here of 40 years. Then, and only then, it would seem by God's plan, was this man of God, Moses, now ready for what came next. So that's one, that's his preparation. Two, the presentation, God's presentation. Let's look at verse two. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. I want you to look at the text there in verse 2. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Moses out of the bush. Out of the bush. Now, we needn't linger here too long. However, that name, that expression there does deserve comment because we're going to see it again. And I know you're very familiar with that, the expression, the angel of the Lord. Of the main questions that are asked in these verses, it is this. Who is the angel of the Lord? Maybe in your devotions you come across the angel of the Lord and you wonder who is that? And again, we're going to see the angel of the Lord again. Think of Exodus 23, just by way of one example uh, in this book. And that grand title, the angel of the Lord, has invited all kinds of speculation. So it begs us a minute or two to just unpack that quickly. And most of it that has been presented often is not helpful. So we want to just take a moment and look at it. Some would say that this angel of the Lord is Michael because of the fire, right? A powerful angel, mighty. Some say Gabriel, 
Because there's a message there. Some actually say this is a brand new angel, an unnamed angel, a special angel. You can imagine the angel of angels. Yet the identity of this angel of the Lord is presented, and here it is. If you've been at Westmount for any number of time, you know this is a key tool in our toolbox, context. Look at verse 4. The angel of the Lord remembers in the bush, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him where? Out of the bush. Out of the bush. Yes, the angel of the Lord is simply the Lord himself. That would be the case in all 67 instances in the Old Testament. Often, like here, the next verse in context contains a direct reference to God. I can think of the many references of the angel of the Lord in Scripture. Maybe you can too, where in context it is the Lord. Now that's the contextual tool, the contextual confirmation of who this is. There's also grammar in the name itself. I want you to look at that, angel of the Lord, Malak Yahweh, or the angel Yahweh, a definite grammar there, a definite reference to who this is. Later in chapter 23, we'll see the same angel appear leading the Israelites. And we're not only told there in verses 20 to 23 that God's name is in him, but also mark this of the angel of the Lord, that he has the power to forgive sins. And that's the domain of only one individual, is it? Power to forgive sins. Mark 2, 7 tells us correctly that is who? God. Yes, God. Now, that would be enough to confirm, but we have another detail we need to mention because it's right here in the text. Look at verse 2 again. He appears to Moses in the bush in a flame of fire. The keen Old Testament reader recognizes immediately that flaming appearances are normally associated with God. That's the form God takes in Genesis 15, 17, striking the covenant with Abraham. God leads, what, later in a pillar of fire in the same book, Exodus 13, verse 21. God descends, the text says, like fire on Mount Sinai in chapter 19, when we'll see the giving of the law. We have Elijah in 1 Kings 19, Ezekiel in the opening chapter, and Daniel 9, among others, all seeing God in fire. So the angel of the Lord is a manifestation of the Lord himself. Now, this presentation of God is not just an angel of the Lord with fire. Look what else. In verse 2 we're told, God appeared out of the midst of a bush. And more, note this, when Moses looked what? He noted the bush burning but not being consumed. This is a supernatural appearance. Listen, in the wilderness, bushes burn, but they burn up. They burn up. Not here. This is supernatural. It continues to burn. That would have grabbed Moses' attention. He spent 40 years in the wilderness. He, he hasn't seen anything like this. It's more than enough, in fact, to get Moses' attention. And with Moses focused now directly where, here it is, the presence of God is, God calls. Look at verse 4. Out of the bush, Moses, Moses, God calling. Now let's consider not just that verse, but these verses as we are in the greater context of the call of God. We need to make a few comments here. First of all, we need to begin with the most obvious the call of God is initiated by God. Do you see that? The call of God is initiated by God. Hear me. This is not Moses reasoning himself to God in the wilderness. 
sitting on a rock saying, aha, Yahweh. This is not Moses thinking, you know, I think I'm done with shepherding. Give me something new. Where are you, Yahweh? This is not Moses coming to God at all. Beloved, let's not miss this in this text. God comes to Moses. Do you see that? God comes to Moses. Secondly, the call of God then is no different to any other call of God in the Scriptures. This is God initiating, God coming, is the repeated, ongoing call in the Scripture. Let me just give you a few. God called Gideon in Judges 6 with some hallmarks that are familiar. Remember, Gideon is busy doing something. He's threshing wheat, remember? He wasn't looking for God. In fact, he's very reluctant in the chapters that follow. What about Samuel in 1 Samuel 3? He's called exactly like this twice by his name. And in fact, Samuel doing anything but looking was what? Asleep. He was asleep. And it is God initiating with his prophets. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1. On and on it goes. What about the Son of God calling his apostles? Did they look for him on the shore? No, they were too busy fishing and tax collecting. And what about famously Saul? You know him now as the Apostle Paul. Yes, he was looking for a relationship with God, right? No, he wasn't. He was looking for anything but that when God initiated and God came down. And beloved, I would submit to you today, to men and women of God, just like you and me, listen, we were not looking for God when he called us. We were not looking for God. In fact, theologically and clearly, we would say we were dead. We were dead. More than asleep, we were dead. We can't look for God when we are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 captures this so, so perfectly. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's right. We were dead men and women walking. That's what we were before his initiation. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then the key glorious transition in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God moved. God initiated in our death, in our spiritual death. That's the call of God in salvation. It's the call of God on Moses here. Beloved, it is impossible for a spiritually dead person to reason, will, and choose God. He cannot. That is why God presents himself in his call every time he initiates. In fact, that's what Titus 3, 4 describes. Listen, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Mark that. Because of his mercy because of his grace, not because of anything we did, not because of anything we reasoned, not because we were looking, but because of his mercy. God moves first when he calls his children. That's what we see clearly here with Moses. Nothing changes with your God. This is God's presentation to Moses. Initially, 
clearly and powerfully. Before we leave this point, we just need to note the subsequent response. It's so fitting for where we're going to be next week. Three simple words by Moses. Look at them, the end of verse 4. Here I am. Here I am. That would seem to set the table for something. Again, we'll be there next week. God's presentation not only demands, but it enables a response, and Moses does. Again, hang on to that. We'll return to what Moses has to say next week. For now, though, we're just going to continue with this account and move to verse 5 and our next element. We've looked at God's preparation, his presentation, and now God's placement. Look at verse 5. God's placement. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. If you recall, in these verses, it was a year ago at our fall conference, Holiness, we in fact were right in this passage, so a lot of this is just by way of reminder for many of you, but we do need reminders, don't we? This is the call of God, but it is also the call to holiness that we looked at last year, the call to holiness. In fact, the call of God and the call to holiness go hand in hand. You see that in Scripture every time. If God calls someone, He calls them to be holy. There is no uh, call of God without a call of holiness that comes with it. And we do need to see this element of the call of God today. We must see it. It's right here. God prepares. God presents himself. And here, God places Moses on holy ground with a call. And that would not be on some special mountain in and of itself, right? That's not what this is. But on this mountain ground that is now holy because God is there. Do you see that? That's it. It's not some special mountain with special contours. It's holy ground because now God is there. That's just so important. God dwells, thus it is holy. That's what makes this ground or anything else with God's residence on it holy. It is holy. It is a set-apart mountain now, if you will, Because it is now a mountain of God. It's not like the other mountains, right? This is the mountain where God is. And nothing we will see of holiness in this passage will say less than that. This mountain is set apart. Here's the key language. To be holy is to be set apart. Now that's a good definition of holiness. We learned this last year, but it's not enough, right? It's not enough just to be set apart. There is more than that here. Let's look at this in the text. It's it's more than just being set apart. First, this call of God in Exodus 3 is not well known for God separating from man. That's not what it's known for, that God is going to separate from man. This is not a call where God says to Moses, I cannot come to you. I cannot speak to you. Nor can we cohabitate in this place because you're not like me. That's not what this account is saying at all, is it? No. No. No, in fact, quite the opposite. God, remember, initiates. God places Moses right into his manifest presence on that mountain. God calls out to Moses, and God tells Moses that the actual ground that you stand on, this mountain, is holy. The ground is holy ground. 
Now, it is true that there's an initial separation defined here. We want to make sure that's clear. There is that, and you see that. God cautions Moses to stop initially. And he does proceed to command Moses to remove his sandals. However, what we need to observe here is that while separation is in the call, here it is, separation is not the point of the call of God. And I would submit to you, separation in and of itself is not the point of holiness alone. In other words, God doesn't just call us to separate. He never says that. There's much more, which leads us to this very crucial aspect that I want us to see in this text. God says the place on which you are standing, he allows Moses to stand on this ground, and he says it's holy. Now remember, before we go further, this is holy ground, not because of what's in it, special soil or anything like that, but it's holy because of who's on it. Simply, this is holy ground because God is in this place and he's invited and brought Moses. This is holy ground because this is a place where God is. Yet let's be reminded, God does not banish this man standing there. God comes to him. God meets him. God begins, mark this, a process of intimate relationship with Moses. And he says, separate. We'll talk about that in a moment. And place yourself closer to me. And how does he do that? Well, it's confirmed by the last comment here. Look closely. God says what? Take your sandals off your feet. Those of you, again, last year, you remember us walking through this. This is a well-known command and a demonstration of how we can miss an element that lies at the heart of the call of God on all of us. I mean, consider what you think of when you hear that command. What do you think of with the sandals in ancient Near East? You think Moses is not worthy, right? That his sandals are filthy, that God is so other than Moses, and an appropriate preparation and presentation is required of Moses, and it's what he's, or of God, and it's what he's due. Now listen, all of that is true, right? Like separation, it's all true, and it's absolutely affirmed as we looked at the rest of Scripture. However, to leave it at that would be to miss the heart of the call of God on you and on Moses here. It would miss what the call of God entails In a grand sense, what is incredible about this account is what God does not say. I want you to look at it again. God does not tell Moses, you know what, Moses, get a whole bunch of wood or extra sandals because you need a lot of buffer between your feet and my ground. He doesn't say that, does he? Go and fetch really, really clean sandals, Moses. He doesn't say that even. Newly made ones. This is even like getting ready for the wedding, right? Get out your best. No. He says, take it off. Let your skin touch my ground. God says, instead of putting layers of buffers between your naked feet and my holy ground, I want you instead to remove those sandals and have just your feet touch my ground. That is nothing short of intimacy. That is drawing closer Not just divided separation. Separate, yes. Separate the filth. Separate the things of the world. Separate from those things. Take them away from you and me. But then when you separate, here it is, don't miss it, you devote yourself completely to me. Do you see that? That's devotion to God. Devotion to God. And this is the call of God. We see that holiness is about our proximity to the presence 
of God. This is separate and devote. The call of God places us closer to God, and thus, because this is God's placement of you, Christian, into his presence, into his plan, it thus requires us to remove the things that hinder that relationship, i.e. sandals, that impede our drawing close and our intimacy with God. Here with fresh ears, Hebrews 12, this is the same spirit after the hall of faith. Hebrews 12, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us what? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what we're talking about here, beloved. This is intimacy. And by the way, a couple of details in verse 6 confirm this intimacy. First, God says, stick with the text, verse 6, God says, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of your line, of your family. This is not a call of God from some foreign God. God is saying, I am known. You know me. You know me. Second, look at what Moses does in response. He hides his face. Do you see that? Why? Not because of intimidation, because of awe-inspired intimacy. This is Moses in a place he has never been before. This is Moses called and now intimate with his God. Sinclair Ferguson describes this holy intimacy, something like a bride and a bridegroom getting so close for the first time. That moment, right? They're physical and they're intimate for the first time. That moment of nakedness that they have to fight the recoil to look away. That's what's going on here. And this is the call of God, placing Moses into his presence and onto holy ground. And just like our call, Christian, a call to holiness. Be separate and fully devoted to God. That's the call of God. One more element here, God's promise. Let's turn our attention directly now to verse 7, God's promise. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. The Lord provides a motivation for his call to Moses here. Look at it. The Lord says what? I have surely seen. That surely points to something in the Hebrew that says this is emphasis. I have not just seen. I have surely seen. The Lord says I have heard their cry. The Lord says, I know their sufferings. God is not absent in Israel's plight here. God is not too busy with other things. God says, I have seen. Look at this relationship. I have heard and I know the affliction of my people. I'm quite sure you can derive comfort from that today. And God says, in light of that, look at verse 8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. It is his people's plight, do you see this, that moves God. It is the circumstance of his chosen that moves God. 
And not only to move, but mark this, to move in light of his promise. You see that? It moves him to do something in light of his promise. We looked at this earlier in Exodus, but remember the promise. And mark this, Genesis 15. You remember this promise given first to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abram, this is in Genesis 15, verse 13, know for certain, same emphasis, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But here's the promise. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's a promise. That's a promise motivating what we read in Exodus 3. And then this, further down in Genesis 15, mark it, to your offspring, this is to Abraham, I give this land. What land is he standing in? The promised land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amazing. Amazing promise of God that was known and here the motivation. The call of God to Moses is a call made by way of promise fulfillment. God had promised deliverance. God had promised the land. And here by way of Moses in his call, God begins to do just that. Church market, the call of God is always motivated by the promise of God. The call of God is always motivated by the promise of God. And that is not only true here, but it is true always. It's not true just for Moses, but Christian, for you and your salvation right now. Your call at conversion was a call of God on your life, prepared by God, initiated by God, and presented by God. Here it is, for the purpose of, the express purpose of fulfilling a promise. And mark this, pray, stick with me, almost done. It was not a promise from God to his people. Look, God made many promises to us, and we benefit from those. But that's not the promise we're talking about that motivated your salvation. That's not it. This was a promise from God the Father to God the Son. This is a Trinitarian promise, a gift to the praise of his glory. That's what we're talking about, and this is glorious. Our promises that God gives to his people are good, but they flow out of the divine, big, eternal promise from father to son. This is precisely what Jerry opened up for us last week, and I want you to listen again to the end of the passage that we started. Ephesians 1.11, in him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to what? To the praise of his glory." We were predestined according to his purposes. Do you see that? 
We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And beloved, our inheritance is guaranteed. Listen to the praise of His glory, not to ours. I mean, we enjoy glorious benefits, but it's to the praise of His glory. That's a promise from Father to Son. Our call, church, is fulfillment of that. I want you to grab a hold of this as we close. Turn to John 17. This is precisely what Jesus refers to in his high priestly prayer. This grand, glorious truth that undergirds your salvation, Christian. I just want you to grab a hold of this, and I pray, even if you get a glimpse of this, that we all would be blessed today. John 17. This is now, you talk about intimacy. This is the the chapter in Scripture where the divine curtain is pulled back and we see the Son praying to the Father. Many of you I know in here, this is your favorite chapter of Scripture. But I want you to grab something new here, something maybe you haven't seen. There is a grand plan and a grand gift that's woven throughout this chapter. Look with me. What does Jesus say? This is to the praise of his glory. Look in chapter 17, verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, this is the Son, to give eternal life to all, and then listen to this, whom you have given him. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people, and what? Whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and what? You gave them to me. Go down to verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but what? For those whom you have given me. Go down to verse 11. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. We could go on and on, but down to verse 24. Father, I desire. Now, by the way, he's talking about you. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. That is the prayer of Jesus to the Father, referring to the grand plan. Church, we are all called by God. We are chosen in Christ because of a promise of God the Father to God the Son as a gift to him. And ultimately, beloved, to spring off what Jim said this morning, we want to elevate your view of even the plan of God, not just the person of God, but the plan of God. Why can you trust everything that God is sovereignly allowing today? Because of this eternal Trinitarian plan. This is not just God wanting some little blessings for you. Don't bring the ceiling down there. Your trust in everything going on in your body and outside your body is rooted in the eternal gift from the Father to the Son. That's why you can trust and hope and give glory to the praise of His glory. That's what you have here in your call of God. God has called you, and we are just bit parts in something much bigger that's going on in eternity past, present, and future to the praise of his glory. So much more we can say, but I must digress for now and land the plane. We conclude in verse 10. Word of God, so glorious. Verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
The opening of this call of God is emboldened with this strong charge. Look at it. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. This is God. And, and remember, this is literally the ruler of the world at that time. Moses, I'm going to send you to him. Why? That you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, in one sense, that's a promise itself to Moses, right? In that, you see God is giving him a promise, and we'll pick that up next week. And it caps this call of God. God lays out exactly how this is going to go down. He says, you're going to go to Pharaoh for the express purpose of delivering my people from Egypt. Now, we don't want to cheapen this, but that's a straightforward promise backed by God, and that is the call of God to Moses here. Now, as we close, we must say this. We have not heard from Moses yet. There's a lot of grandness, right? We haven't heard from Moses. How was that call received? One simple, here I am, but Moses has much more to say. Which is ironic for a man that will wrestle with his mouth. He has much to say here. And we're going to pick that up next time. Let's pray. Father, we are just in awe of your eternal plan. That we would be part of the eternal gift that you would give from father to son. That, Lord, we would be part of something that would be to the praise of his glory, Lord, our salvation. And, Lord, forgive us when we root our trust in plans and things that we see that are much lower than that. Lord, elevate our vision. Help us to see these grand things in your word. Oh, God, we pray that we would just grab a glimpse of what it means to be fully devoted to you in a text like this, Lord. God, let us walk away more holy today as we beg and pray in Christ's name.